Okay, we're all ready to get start. Happy uh, to get started, rather. Happy New Year, everybody. Of course, thanks for uh, bearing with the break in the Bible study action last week. But of course, uh, trust you had a good vacation, and we're happy to get right back at it with Robert's continued study of Acts. Okay, today we are reading a really, really short portion of Scripture, and I will explain why in a minute. But here we go. Now in those days, when the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called the whole group of the disciples together and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables, but carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the entire group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Gentile convert to Judaism from Antioch. They stood these men before the apostles, who prayed and placed their hands upon them. The word of God continued to spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Again, I know that was really short, but... There's actually a lot to discuss, and also I want to use this as a sort of springboard to talk about what's called church polity, like church government. I think that this is a new year, and if anybody's thinking about maybe joining a church, you know, going to church for the first time or whatever, I bet one of the questions in your mind is, well, how do churches govern themselves? And um, there's a reason why this passage connects to that. So, yeah, without further ado... Let me um, just get to it. So, as you know, at the very beginning of the passage, we are introduced to a different group of Jews. And I know that I'm going to say Jews a lot today. That's going to sound a little racist. <laughs> but of course, I don't mean it in any bad way. Um, we hear about the Hebrews. If you literally, if you look at the text, that's what they're called, the Hebrews. These are the Jews that they essentially were born in Israel, grew up in Israel, respected the Israeli customs, and so forth. And now we're introduced to the so-called Greek-speaking Jew. Okay, This is an ethnically distinct group. Now, by ethnicity, I do not mean race. I mean a group that has a different cultural background. Okay, That's what I mean by ethnicity. In, in our text, like I said, it says Greek-speaking Jew. Literally, the word in the text is Hellenist. Now, this is really important in the story because this is actually the first, the first step to go out of Jerusalem into the world, right, for the gospel to go out into the world. First, we start with the Hebrews, Israeli Jews. Now we're moving out to, so to speak, Greek Jews, and then after that, it's going to go out to Gentiles, to non-Jews, right? And, and so again, this does not seem like a lot, but there is an important step being taken here. Now, is the term Greek-speaking Jew a good translation for Hellenist? Of course, it, you know, it is a fine translation. I'm not going to say that it's wrong, but it, but it can convey the wrong idea. And the translators of the NET, the translation we use, are aware of that because they include a couple of notes where they say, you know, Greek-speaking Jew 
attempts to convey something of who these were, but it was more than a matter of language spoken. It involved a degree of adoption of Greek culture as well. And then they have a second note to further clarify. And they, they say the Greek-speaking Jews were the Hellenists, Jews who to a greater or lesser extent had adopted Greek thought, custom, and lifestyle, as well as the Greek language. The city of Alexandria in Egypt was a focal point for them, but they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Okay. So what would happen, and we actually have a lot of archaeological evidence about this, not just from the Bible, Jews that grew up in the diaspora, meaning in the Roman and Greek world to which the, the Jewish population had expanded to, they would relocate back in Jerusalem particularly. They would come back to their homeland. But, of course, when they would do that, they would bring their culture with them. Now, um, back in the day, like if you go back a few decades, scholars would say that these Hellenists, they had a deep theological disagreement with the Hebrews. They either had a lesser regard for the temple and temple worship, or some scholars might take it even further and say they were opposed to the temple and temple worship. Really, uh, very few of anybody today takes that approach. The, the distinction here is, like I said, ethnicity in the sense of culture. These two groups have slightly different cultures, but certainly a Jew that took the time and effort and expense to relocate to his homeland probably had actually a very high regard for the temple and Jewish customs and so forth. Now, you get these, these two groups, right, that have, again, a slightly different culture. And as one might predict, problems happen. We know that, first of all, just expansion on its own will, will create problems, but particularly when your, ex, your expansion crosses cultural boundaries, uh, you, you know, you're going to have some, some conflict. If there's anything we have learned in the last several years of, of intense immigration in the West is that um, cultures tend to not, you know, just work with one another so good, so well, I should say. Um, so what happens, there's an accusation of favoritism, if you want to put it relatively positively, or uh, at worst, here's an accusation of racism, where the Greek Jews, the Hellenists are saying, hey, you know, our widows are not being taken care of as well as the Hebrew widows. Now, th this is actually the first schism we read about in the church, you could try to include Ananias and Sapphira, but remember that at least the way the Bible portrays that is that's more of an infiltration, right? Ananias and Sapphira, they they have um, been essentially listening to the devil. They've been taken over by the devil, and they are, so they're enemies infiltrating the church. This is different. These are people within the church that have a complaint about, a complaint about the church. So, I, you know, we should pay some attention to this. How does the early church, which before this I always described as this ideal community, how do they deal with this first problem, particularly when it's so tricky? A little bit of background on widows. Of course, I know that, you know, everybody knows what the word means. But in the ancient world, uh, being a widow was about the worst thing that could happen to you uh, except for perhaps slavery. Um, but even some forms of slavery may have been preferable to being a widow. Why? Because a widow had no connection to society. Women were connected to society 
through the men in their lives. But a widow, especially if she could not return to her father's home, she effectively was kind of a legal non-entity. She could not inherit property. She could not purchase land. She could not work outside the home, but she also did not have a home, which is to say the system left her completely destitute. And widows would then depend on the resources of relatives and charity. Like I said, relatives, normally we would be talking about the father's home, but possibly siblings. Um, well, the other thing that that I think perhaps we don't realize when we read this passage is that the sheer number of widows, the proportion of widows as compared to the to the number of women was tremendous. There's at least one estimate by a scholar, not not some random estimate, that um, it estimated that one third of all women in the Roman Empire were widows. So there could be so many widows that they could bankrupt a community. The community just could not take care of them. Okay, so that that's kind of the problem. This is a serious problem. Now, what, um, you know, or or one last thing, I guess, to kind of set up the problem. Remember that the people in charge of distributing the 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 charity, the food, and other resources, if there were any, were the apostles themselves, right? We were told that before. So this accusation of favoritism or racism, or at best a supposed neglect, is is you know it, it's against the church, but at least by implication, it is against the apostles. So this is a very uh, serious charge. Now. Should we assume the worst, by the way, before we get to the solution? Should we assume that the apostles, they they were outright racist or whatever, you know, or outright showed favoritism? And the answer really is no. There are many reasons why this could have happened unintentionally. First of all, we, we continue to read that the church is growing, 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 Essentially, the apostles outgrew their own capabilities, right? This was just beyond them. There's not enough hours in the day. Also, the way the charity would have been distributed, it, it could have been a couple of different ways, perhaps to use something like the Roman dole, the, the system that the Romans had to give free or subsidized grain to their people. This actually worked a lot like the government works today. People get on a list, on a registry, and then... Um, the government gives you your allotted portion. Paperwork was kept. It was a very detailed system. Again, much like, say, food stamps today. The more likely alternative is that the food was being distributed out through private means and through the synagogues. So probably, like, people, some people in the church kept all the stuff in their home, and then they would, they would you know, give it out from their home. Um, and these Hellenist widows, they they were probably less connected to the community. They may not have known who was keeping the food and where they could go to get it, right? Just very practical reasons. Um, on top of that, there may have been just a lot more Hellenist widows because the people who moved back to Jerusalem would have moved when they were older in age. So it makes sense that there would be more widows. And... Um, Finally, local widows probably had family to take care of them, whereas Hellenist widows did not. And so perhaps there were more Hellenist widows that were, uh, you know, unprovided for simply because there were more of them to begin with. Okay. So there's really no reason to assume 
or conclude any ill will on the part of the apostles. Now, how do they deal with this problem? And I think we see two important principles at play here. Number one, you know, they recognize their limitations and their explicit calling, right? So they say, well, we have to prioritize the word of God over the distribution of food. And, but to continue this ministry of, of charity, we are going to delegate duties, right? And think about it. Those, those things are not obvious. Like if, if it comes to charity or preaching the word of God, what should we pick? Now, generally speaking, these two are not opposed to one another. So, so 99 out of 100 times, we don't have to make this choice. But if it really comes to that, what is the choice that they make? Hey, we've got to preach the word of God. And then they delegate. They, you know, they say, hey, we're going to have to pick guys who can take care of this, of this ministry. We see Jesus doing that. Um, I I provide some citations there in the in the blog if you're interested. For just for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip reading those. Now, even if the solution is clear in principle, hey, we need to delegate, right? We need to we need help. Applying a solution can sometimes still be tricky. Who do we pick? Who then who are going to be the new leaders in the local church who take care of this ministry? And a fact that we might miss is that, and, and if you go back now, you'll notice it, all of the men who are selected for this are Hellenist, right? They all have Greek names, and we're given a little bit of information about two of them, and all of that points to them being Hellenist. So actually, they this is going to sound really bad, but let me explain. This is like a little bit of affirmative action going on here, where they pick members of the offended community. Now, before we get overly political with this, I think we can recognize that the solution is is very effective in this sense. I'm, I mean, I don't know, not that I want to get into my personal politics. I'm not particularly a fan of affirmative action. I will just say that. Uh, but in this case, it's quite effective to say, well, it is the Hellenists who are um, claiming discrimination, then Let's put some Hellenists in charge of the distribution of food. So essentially that complaint is completely defeated. Now, two things, again, before we kind of get carried away with this idea of affirmative action. Um, first of all, the apostles do not tell the church, as far as we can tell, that they must pick Hellenists. So it's not, you know, it's not like this was forced upon the church, it seems like. And number two, the apostles do set some specific criteria. These uh, these men, they have to be of good reputation, which our translation uh, phrases is favorably attested, and they must be full of the spirit and wisdom, okay? This idea of being of good reputation, this was a common requirement for holding office in the Greco-Roman world. You see it all over the place. So essentially, the, the apostles are taking this seriously, just like, you know, if again, if they were going to choose a governor or something or a senator or something of the sort, it's like these are the requirements. You must be of good reputation. Um, the other thing, right, is being filled with the spirit and wisdom. Now, being filled with the spirit in this context, it seems to be more of a continuous thing than a, like a one-time inspiration. These must be people who really are, are filled with the spirit of God uh, continually. And then, you know, 
this link between the spirit and wisdom, we discovered it or discovered it. We discussed it at length during our study of John. So I'm not going to go into it in any detail, but it was, there was a, a very common link that people at the time would make between the spirit of God and wisdom. In fact, in some of their literature, the two were the same. You see examples uh, in the Old Testament, in Exodus and Proverbs. I give two citations in the blog if you're interested, and particularly in the book of wisdom or the wisdom of Solomon, which Protestant Bibles do not contain that book, but Catholic Bibles do. In that book, again, there's almost an equivalency between wisdom and the Spirit of God. So the, the expectation there is that a person who is filled with the Spirit will also be filled with wisdom. This should go without saying, but wisdom would also imply, you know, some knowledge as to how to handle funds in other church property. So the requirements make sense, and the church selects some some leaders. Here's kind of a random topic, but should we care that they picked seven leaders, right? We have 12 apostles, and now they they appoint seven, uh, what our passage calls deacons. I'm actually going to contest that in a minute, but uh, so I'm going to continue to use the word leaders for a second. Well, uh, the word seven, or not the word, the number seven, it really had significance in not only the Jewish culture, but in other ancient cultures, particularly in relation to the selection of leaders. Like essentially what I'm, what I'm getting at is ancient cultures would oftentimes uh, use seven leaders or 70 leaders or 70 something leaders in, you know, in any given context. We see this in Luke, for example, Jesus appoints 72 men to preach the good news from town to town. Now this number in relation to appointing leaders in response to a complaint by the people, it, it I mean, unmistakably points back to a scene in Numbers 11 where a very similar thing happens. Now, Moses is involved. God has been providing food for, for the Israelites, and the Israelites are fed up with that food, not, you know, figuratively, of course, and they go, we would like to eat meat. And we remember our time in Egypt when we would eat all of these like better spices and cucumbers and melons and leeks and blah, blah, blah. And, and it, it's very ungrateful on the part of, of the Jews, of course, uh, of the Israelites. And God says to Moses, fine, like, you know, not only will I answer their complaint, but you need to appoint some leaders to help you with this. And they appoint 70 men of the elders of Israel. And the spirit is imparted to them. It really is very, very close to, to the scene in Acts 6. Uh, if you want to read it, again, it's in the blog. I know that I'm going a little bit fast today, but I, I really want to get um, kind of the, the main point at the end. Now, we should also consider, by the way, on that note, that perhaps the apostles did not mean anything by the number seven. I do think that people read too much into numerology. Um, at the time, councils in Jewish towns, they had seven members. So think about it. Like they, you know, the apostles need a council to lead the church. So they appoint seven people because that's just how it was done. 
think if today we started a company, we would probably appoint a president, a secretary, and a treasurer. Now, why are we appointing three? Why are we giving them those, those specific titles? Do we have any deeper meaning? No, that's just how it's done, right? So I think that's also important to consider. Okay. Now we're going to get more into the, the meat of what I want to discuss and I know that I, I am taking this passage and and really using it as a springboard to to discuss a larger topic, but um, at least I have a, a good motive for doing that. I I think this is important uh, for people to know about, uh, particularly I don't know if you're considering visiting a church or something of the sort. If you noticed, if if you read the passage on your own ahead of time, or you pulled out the passage on the NET, which is a very available online, by the way, netbible.org, uh, you saw that it was titled something like the first seven deacons. Um, if I'm getting that off, it's only like slightly off. Um, well, I'm, I'm looking real quick, actually. Uh, yeah, the appointment of the first seven deacons. If I, I was only slightly off. Well, deacon is it's a certain church office, right? And that points us to, to this larger topic of church government that I want to introduce. Um, church government also goes, goes by the term of church polity, just like politics, but remove the C and, and you kind of get to the word. It obviously comes from the same word. And central to the discussion of church polity, meaning how a church should be governed or ruled or organized, whichever word you would like to use, generally the discussion begins with what are the offices that are prescribed by Scripture? And three options, sometimes four, always come to the forefront. You're going to have deacons, which that comes from a certain Greek word, diakonos. You're going to have elders, and depending on the church, they may be called pastors, they may be called presbyters, and that comes from the word presbyteros. And then you will have the office of bishop, which comes from the word episcopos. Makes sense, right? Like think of the Episcopal Church. That word episcopal literally means bishops. Well, um, the most controversial out of these three offices is as you might guess, the office of bishop. Not all Christian churches recognize bishops. Uh, bishops, generally speaking, are defined as, as being over the elders, over the presbyteros, over the pastors. So they are regional leaders to over a number of churches and therefore a number of pastors. Of course, an example that the of a church that recognizes this would be the Catholic Church, but I could give many other examples. And then an example of a church that does not recognize episcopos, bishops, would be the Baptist Church. The argument that a church would make that does not recognize bishops is that the word episcopos and presbyteros are synonyms. They're not distinct church offices. Just to give you some context, the word bishop appears only five times in the New Testament. A word like presbyteros appears 72 times, and diakonos appears 29 times. But here's, 
like, you know, let, let's kind of add a little bit more meat to this discussion. You might be asking, how can churches disagree on this? Like, is the Bible not clear on, on whether we should have bishops or not? And, you know, say, what about the other offices, deacons and presbyters and so forth? And the thing is that, like I've said before, it's not like the Bible is some sort of manual that, that tells you, okay, this is how you're going to do things. What we have is a story, a true story, of course, and we're trying to pull conclusions from there. And sometimes the story in language in itself can be tricky. Take, for example, what we just read. Consider the NET outright calls this the appointment of the first seven deacons, okay? But when you look at the text, actually the word deacon, diakonos, is never in the text, not one time. Twice, you have a related noun, but it's a different noun, uh, diaconia. And once, you have the verb cognate of of the word diakonos. So like the verb version of diakonos. You may say, well, the verb is there, but um, a verb cognate does not always, in fact, rarely points to the noun cognate of the, of the word. Um, think in English, for example, the word server and the verb to serve. The noun server certainly can describe a certain office, right? Like if you're a server at a restaurant, that is a particular job. But if I say, hey, I served somebody dinner at my house and I used the verb, I by no means I'm implying that I hold some kind of office of server at my house, okay? Then even if you were to look further into, say, the word diakonos, it often, it most of the time, it has nothing to do with a church office. Although in some instances, it certainly does seem to, to mean that. Um, now, I, by the way, I do believe in deacons. This is not, uh, I'm not, this is not like an anti-deacon rant. What I'm trying to show with Acts 6 is that people are trying to draw conclusions from the text, and it's not always super clear in, in, you know, language in itself can be can be tricky to interpret. And so that's why churches have what I would consider to be reasonable disagreements, okay, reasonable disagreements. So actually, although I'm, I'm building up this polemic, what I'm trying to do is, is to lower the temperature and say, look, you can read, two people can read this text and, and come to slightly different conclusions in good faith. Now, certainly sometimes people will argue in bad faith and they just outright take the text beyond where it can really go. But that's that. Now, let me introduce two other questions in the text, and then we, we are going to talk about modern church's polity. So one thing that I think we assume in the text, but it's certainly not there, is whether the selection of these leaders was democratic. Right? What are we told in the text? We are told that the congregation, the group, that's literally the word that is in there, the group selected the leaders. And because we are modern people, we immediately think, well, then obviously the group voted, one person, one vote, and they selected the leaders. But it, the text certainly does not say that. And that could be the case. It, it absolutely could be the case that the congregation voted in a democratic way, uh, but it absolutely could be the case that other methods were used. Now, 
the fact that they selected the leaders does strongly imply that they, they did not use a form of chance, as in casting lots. But, for example, it could have been the elders in the church who selected the leaders. That would not have been unusual. So, the text certainly does not oppose the democratic model. It certainly does not. But it also does not impose it, right? It leaves that question open. Now, of course, if we were, you know, studying deacons, we would go to all the passages that mention them. And when you put all those together, you might be able to make a solid argument for a democratic form of government in the church or against it. And that's kind of for another day, but I'm focusing just on the text at hand. And finally, the, the, the last question that I want to raise is, Notice that authority is given to the new leaders by the laying of hands, right? The apostles lay hands on them and convey authority to the new leaders. Now, this, this idea of, of laying hands, it, it points again to the Old Testament, to numbers. I quoted the, the passage in the blog, and I would love to read it, but uh, if we have time, I will. So laying of hands was a custom that that they had for, I mean, thousands of years, if not hundreds of years at the very least. And it was a form of commissioning. It was also a form of blessing, of patriarchal blessing, and a form of empowerment. We do see instances of laying hands to pray for somebody, like pray for, for healing, for example, or that they may receive the Spirit. So laying of hands, is it, it's a very powerful thing symbolically and perhaps also literally. We see the same kind of action being taken by Paul and uh, at least one church in the letters of Paul in First and Second Timothy. So this is a custom that the, that the church we know used for quite a while. And, and we use it up to today. In fact, uh, rabbis, they would... Uh, not appoint, but ordain is the word I was thinking of. Ordain their pupils by laying of hands. And the church has effectively done the same for 2,000 years now. Now, here's the, the question that, you know, that I, I want to raise, and I'm, in a sense, not actually going to answer it. <laughs> if authority is, is given to somebody by laying of hands, then this necessitates that you have somebody who's already a leader, right? Otherwise, who's going to do the laying of hands? Well, if, if you follow that logic, you might and you might believe, and not, not incorrectly, I'm not taking a, a position on this, but you might believe then that the only way that leadership is valid is if it was passed on to you from a prior leader, right? So you would need this succession all the way from Jesus to the apostles to the people who succeeded the apostles to the generation that succeeded them and so forth, all the way down to today to your local pastor. This idea of, of succession that validates leadership is actually something that most denominations believe. Uh, in the blog, I say rather surprisingly because I think uh, someone may be tempted to believe that this is more of a Catholic belief, and that's actually not the case. 
many, if not most, Protestant churches believe that as well. Now, from a very practical standpoint, what would this mean? That generally speaking, let's say that I built a church out of my backyard and I just invited people and made myself the pastor without anyone else blessing this endeavor. If we want to say it like that, anyone else ordaining me for this, uh, most Christian churches would see that as inappropriate and perhaps entirely invalid. Now, not all, um, but this idea of succession is, again, it's actually commonly held by uh, many, if not most churches. Okay. So with all that said, I just have a few minutes to to discuss this, the point that I was kind of building up towards, which is, let's say that you are considering visiting a church today. I imagine that you might be thinking, well, kind of what, what am I getting myself into? Like how are churches organized? Who's really in charge? How are the churches connected, if at all? Like, you know, what is this organization that I am visiting beyond just the local building that I'm I'm walking into. And I'm going to walk through some of the options. And I think this discussion hopefully will make a little bit of sense after what, what I just said. But essentially, church polity is going to come down to two main questions, not the only. I know that I am summarizing. But one is how many church offices do you have deacons, Elders, which again, by most churches, they would just be called pastors. But do you have deacons, elders, and bishops? Or do you only have two? Or sometimes do you only have one? And in only one instance I can think of, you would have none. Um, and is each congregation independent when it comes to government? Okay, Meaning, does each church self-govern? Or are they part of a bigger structure that is able to, to govern them, you know? Essentially, do they answer to a bigger organization? Generally speaking, if, if a church believes in bishops, then they're not going to be congregationalist, meaning they are going to be Episcopal and polity. Um, and if they don't have bishops, it's more likely that they're independent. But there's one option in the middle, which are Presbyterians. Now we'll discuss that in a second. Now, so let me go through each one. And I, I hope this is of, of some help to you. I really, I'm not just discussing this because I enjoy it. <laughs> um, okay, so let's start with a church that most of us are probably not super familiar with, and that's the Eastern Orthodox. I say that just from statistics. The Eastern Orthodox Church is not particularly big in the West, and I don't think we have anybody listening from Russia or you know, Turkey or something. Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they believe in bishops. They, they're they very strong on succession of the apostles, meaning they, they really believe that for a church to be valid, it has to connect all the way back to the apostles. Um, the church as a whole, um, you know, the, it essentially congregations are not self-governing. They do answer to the bishops. However, there is no head of the bishops meaning all the bishops are equal in authority, there is no hope, if we want to put it that way. Then you get the Catholic Church, which the Catholic Church is, is the most Episcopal, because they have a bishop, 
that is higher than the other bishops. That would be the Bishop of Rome. Of course, that is the Pope. And by the way, that is true. The the, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. It's not technically a separate office. It's just kind of higher at the bishop level. Then within bishops, you would have cardinals. Those would be the, the, the next level after the Pope. Then archbishops and then plain old bishops. And under them, you'd have priests who are the presbyteros, the elders. And then you would have deacons, and the deacons would be part of the laity, people who have not been ordained to ministry, and they would help normally with serving the congregation. Um, Anglicans, they also believe in bishops, they also believe in succession, and um, actually they have a very similar system to, to Catholics. They also have a bishop that is higher in rank than the other bishops, and that would be the bishop, of, or sorry, the archbishop of Canterbury. Um. Lutheranism, it's almost impossible to summarize in this in this conversation because they they do it all. If <laughs> some Lutherans have bishops, some Lutherans do not have bishops. Some Lutherans are congregationalist and some are not. In the United States, generally speaking, they are going to be congregationalist and they probably don't have bishops per se. But the organization they belong to will have something like a president, which, I mean, call a spade a spade, acts like a bishop. Okay. Um, if you're Lutheran, I don't mean to offend you at all. I'm just saying, effectively, that's what you have, even if you if you call it something else. Um, yeah. Then the next option would be the Presbyterians. How do they organize? They don't have bishops because they believe that episcopos and presbyteros are synonyms, but they're not congregationalist. You see, this is very weird. Like they don't have bishops, but they still think that churches are connected to one another in governance, at least in some way. And what they do is all of their presbyters, which are their pastors, which are their elders, remember, all, all of that means the same thing. They come together in presbytery, so essentially a council of presbyters, of elders, and then those councils come together in a bigger council, which is the synod. So presbyt Presbyterians uh, are don't, don't have bishops, but they're still not congregationalists. They do organize as a group, and they believe that it is these councils that have some level of authority over the churches. Say some, there's no way I have time to go into all the details about all these people. So if you want to look into it or you want to send me an email, I'm glad to explain in a little bit more detail. Methodists, they always kind of do their own thing. They have bishops, um, but they they believe in, in kind of a, a mixture of all of these systems that they call connectionalism. So sure, they have deacons. They have elders, they have bishops, but they're a little more democratic than others in some ways, a little less, less democratic in other ways. Like it, it's a very complex system, but just know that they're not congregationalists, generally speaking. A Methodist church will be connected and to some extent be governed by a larger organization. Baptists are the quintessential congregationalists, okay? Baptist churches are independent, now, don't get me wrong, they oftentimes associate willingly in organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention. 
And to do that, they have to uphold certain beliefs. They have to give, or they're strongly encouraged to give a certain amount of, of money to the larger organization for purposes like missions and the such, for good purposes. But, you know, if I wanted to take, if I wanted to tell all the Baptist churches to take a day off this coming Sunday, there's literally no way I could do that because nothing rules over the Baptist churches. They rule themselves, each congregation being independent. So, and of course, then Baptists do not believe in bishops. They, they believe that Episcopos and Presbyteros are synonyms. And then I may skip over the other ones for the sake of time, or I'll mention them very briefly. The Evangelical Free Church, which may be present in, say, Montana, to give an example, they are congregationalist as well. They behave very much like Baptists when it comes to church polity. Um, restoration churches, like the Church of Christ. And that term, restoration churches, there's a reason why they call that. Um, if anyone asks, I'll, I'll tell you why, but otherwise I'll go on. Um, Church of Christ is also congregationalist. So they, um, you know, they're independent. They have a very odd system where they believe, generally speaking, that the the deacons are over or yes, they they oh I'm getting all confused now. They believe that the elders are above the minister, above the pastor. So in a church of Christ, the ultimate authority is with the elders and not with the pastor. Generally speaking, in other denominations, it's the opposite. The pastor is higher in authority than the elders. Say generally, because that's not really always the case. Baptist churches play with both systems. Um, and Pentecostals, and I'll, I'll end there, they are often also congregationalist, although many of them join these bigger associations that do end up exerting a fair amount of pressure on them. And they oftentimes believe that the pastor job is actually a distinct office from elder, uh, and they, they justify with a different Greek word. And I'm not saying that they're correct or incorrect. I'm, again, I'm just describing. Um, so they actually may have a system with only deacons and a minister. So deacons and a teacher, and they don't actually have elders or bishops, generally speaking. But they have been moving more towards a system that includes elders. Okay, so that is a quick rundown of the denominations and how they work and how they would view this idea of deacons, elders, and bishops. And with that, I'm going to open it up to discussion and see if, I don't know, if you guys have anything to say about that. Sure. Thanks, Robert. As always, everyone, if you'd like to contribute to the discussion with a question or a thought, just write the word question in the chat, and I will bring it in in the order in which we receive the requests. Uh, as far as my own thoughts, I know this might not just, I gather you're, you're quite interested in the church organization stuff and that's all new to me. So I do have one question about definition of terms there, but what you said at the start of the lesson about widows, I found to be pretty interesting and maybe I'm un understanding it or framing it incorrectly because I view it as sort of a, a punishment almost like the, the way, the way you described being completely isolated from society, you have no rights. And without those rights, you can't really dig out of the situation in which you find yourself. So what are you supposed to do? I understand why a society would want to discourage or punish divorce, 
but being a widow is something that is unless you're a killer, it's out of your control. You know, you are widowed, your husband's dead. You didn't try to do that, but it's just the situation that you're in. Is punishment the right framing or am I just thinking about it incorrectly? I mean, they didn't view it as punishment. Um, it's just how society was. Like they, for once, the feminists would have a point. <laughs> like In the sense that this was such a patriarchal society that women that were not attached to a man by relationship of marriage or blood um, had no connection to society. Like, it, But it wasn't a punishment. It's just how the society was designed. So if attachment to a man is the only way out of that situation, were there ways for widows to gain attachment to a man? You mentioned they could go back to their father if he was still around, but... Were there widowers who were shopping for widows or how, how, how would a widow get out of that situation if at all? Yeah, she, so two ways she could remarry or hopefully the widow had sons. And so then her sons could take care of her. Okay. And so the worst fate imaginable for a woman was for her husband to die when she had no sons or to just have daughters, because now you had a widow and these daughters and all of them are destitute. Yeah. So having a son was so incredibly important because he would be able to inherit the property of the of the dead father and then take care of the sisters and the mom. Hmm. Okay. And my my other question was about just definition of terms and the organization and structure of churches. I think I understand the term congregational to just mean independent, not yeah. part of okay. So is there anything more to the definition than that just no, not it, part of like some like as in the catholic church is very not congregational it's, exactly. it's highly structured and it's a big giant thing congregational will just be like that's the church over there they do whatever they want yep okay just so i understand all right um who is up first let's see here i think patrick is the first request go ahead patrick if you're ready uh can you hear me yes sir cool on my phone. So this is uh, uh, anyway. Sorry if you covered this. I was uh, driving for part of it, but uh, I was curious your perspective on this, Robert. I, you know, in talking about different ways that denominations work, it kind of brought to mind something that I've always kind of thought in my mind and never really knew if it was scripturally sound or <laughs> uh, you know uh, anything like that. But anyway, as far as different denominations, I always wondered if you know, God being un omnipotent and, and, you know, knowing how we react to things, if there are certain reasons why he left things vague and even using, you know, Satan's, you know, predilection to try to divide the Christian community and, you know, making all these different denominations to basically allow him to reach people that require different structures, you know, in their lives. So like even in Catholicism, which I, I, you know, disagree with many aspects of it uh, i can't deny that there are likely some people out there that are catholic and are you know very devout christians and you know have a very close relationship with god i believe that it's possible to not you know be catholic and not have those things just because of the way that it's structured but that's just my opinion but um anyway just curious about your thoughts if, if that seemed reasonable to to think or if there's a some way off base no i think Okay, it's going to sound weird, but I, I'm with you on this. I think that there are plenty of places in which the Greek 
or Hebrew, depending if you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, is ambiguous. And if we really believe that Scripture is inspired by God, then I think we ought to believe that it is inspired to be ambiguous. Perhaps God meant to leave some things open-ended. Um, and, and I think, I know that that sounds weird, like somehow one is undermining Scripture, but it's actually quite the opposite. It's like, look, if Scripture is ambiguous, then I'm going to say that's how God inspired it to be. And, and yeah, I think that's a tenable position, and I've heard it from scholars who specialize in uh, philology. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks Appreciate guys. it. Yeah. Have a good night. Uh, Denby, you're going to go oh, if you're ready. Can I interrupt Matt yeah, for just a second? It's because your I study. <laughs> I do want to say something that somebody said in the comments that it's a great observation. In the Old Testament, because of the plight of widows, there was a system in which if a widow, uh, you know, if, if a woman was left a widow, particularly with no sons, the brother of the dead guy was supposed to marry her. And even this could even result in a situation where now the guy was married to multiple women and the, the brother of the dead guy was supposed to give this woman a child. But this child would be treated, particularly a son, this, this son would be treated like if he was the son of the decedent, not of the brother that actually helped conceive the child. So then this woman would be provided for because she would have this son. Um, Sounds now, like a certain presidential situation that I <laughs> shouldn't get into. Uh, okay. Wow. Um, but right. the, and the only reason I did not mention this is because I don't think that this practice was prevalent by Jesus' day. Not okay. that the law had been undone, but just culturally things had shifted. Uh, that's why I didn't didn't mention it. But that was a great observation. So I'll turn it back over to you. Well, on that, so the the surviving brother in that case, he had in this, was this just like a nice thing that he could do? Or did he have an obligation, like an affirmative duty to do that? It was a moral responsibility of his. Yeah. It, it was a moral responsibility to do this okay. because otherwise this woman, her sister-in-law, his, sorry, his sister-in-law would be destitute. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you for the additional information on that. And thank you to the commenter as well. Denby, if you're ready, go ahead. Um, yeah. So just um, a brief comment about the um, kind of the beginning um, uh, of the, the discussion about the, you know, the Greek, uh, Greek speaking and Hellenistic and all that. And it's one thing I think that um, people nowadays don't realize, which is how Greek, uh, the Roman world really was. It was more Greek than Latin by a long way. Um, now, Robert already alluded to this in, in a, on a few other occasions, but um, the um, many Jews were so Greek that they needed to have the Old Testament translated into Greek so that they could read it because they didn't speak Hebrew or and a lot of them didn't even speak Aramaic, regularly in Alexandria. And, um, you know, like, like um, you often hear about the, 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 the Greek Orthodox Church. That doesn't mean Athens. It means the Greek world. And, uh, you know, that's also why it's called Eastern Orthodox, because the Eastern Empire was a Greek empire more than it was a Latin empire. Um, 
you know, so so for example, when the um uh the Renaissance was a result of the fall of uh, uh, um, Constantinople, and all the Greek scholars ended up in Rome and other centers of the West, and they reintroduced the Greek classics to the to the Western to Western Europe. And so, you know, there's all kinds of names in the New Testament that we think you know. I think we often assume they're they're Hebrew because they're biblical, but they're not. Philip was absolutely Greek. So even if Philip himself hadn't, uh, you know, had rejected the Hellenic world, his family certainly hadn't. And uh, Stephen, of course, that is absolutely a Greek name, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the time when people think that you know, the New Testament was in Greek, so it could reach the most people. But it was already, it was also so that it reached the existing audience of Jewish people in the diaspora, who mostly spoke Greek. Um, and of course, some of them were very Greek. Um, you know, as Robert said, you know, it doesn't mean that they weren't, that they didn't practice um, Jewish religion anymore, but they were in so many cultural ways Greek more than they were Hebrew. Robert, you have any thoughts about that? I mean, he's, yeah, he's absolutely right. And, you know, again, the, the, the Jews who grew up in Israel, they would have spoken Aramaic as a first language, unless maybe they were part of the elite. But any Jew growing up in the diaspora, yeah, they spoke Greek as a first language, almost undoubtedly. Um, and the Greeks expanded their culture through their language. Essentially, if you were a Greek speaker, you were going to absorb their culture. Uh, to some extent, that happens today, right? Like if you're an English speaker, you absorb American culture, whether you like it or not. Um, and I'm not saying that as a negative comment. I'm just saying it's unavoidable. Like language a lot of times carries culture. So yeah, 100%. Thanks, Danby. Uh, Chris has a written question. He asks, there are qualifications in some of the epistles e.g. Titus, Timothy, what do those groupings of requirements tell us about succession and about the differentiation of offices, e.g. in a bishop, uh, is a bishop rather the same as an elder, etc.? Okay, so you see the argument that, say, a, a Baptist might make, and I see that Reverend Rogers wants to make a comment, so it will be interesting to get his take. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not saying that I agree or disagree with this argument. I'm just presenting it. Um, the argument that a Baptist might make is when you look at the list of requirements of qualifications to be a bishop and the list of qualifications to be an elder, they are identical. And um, I mean, you guys can pull up the text for yourselves, but but I mean, the argument is not lying. They're, if they're not identical, they're very, very close. And so they would say, clearly then that points to the fact that these two offices are just one and uh, episcopos and presbyteros are synonyms um so yeah that's part of the evidence that gets pulled into the argument thanks chris and yeah rev rogers would like to chime in as well go ahead rev rogers um yeah you i think you're you are correct the the, the scriptures do not clearly communicate um if there is a differentiation um of hierarchy 
between elder overseer. Now the develop the, the question is is did it develop through the decades and in the earth, the second century? Um, you could begin a to look at a um, a first century document known as the Didache, and that might give you a little indication. But you'd really have to look at the early church fathers in the second century. Uh, let me just point you out to some resources. I put it in the chat. Uh, the YouTube channel Ready to Harvest has excellent comparisons of denominations. It is well worth your time to go to Ready to Harvest. Uh, uh, Gavin Ortland is a Baptist pastor uh, with Truth Unites YouTube's channel, and he does brilliant research into the development of hierarchy in Christianity into the second century and whether or not hierarchy was built into the church in the first century or whether that is a development in order to combat heresy. Um, there was a real emphasis on the authority of a bishop in the second century because there were some forces of heretical movements like the Gnostics uh, that were beginning to undermine congregations. And they had to come up with, well, what is the true authority? What are the scriptures? What is the apostolic teaching? Uh, I was going to chime in just briefly on uh, deacons um, in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. I'm a Southern Baptist. But each individual church has a different view of deacons. Some deacons pra practically function as an elder board. They have authority and you don't make any decisions apart from the deacon board. Other churches like my own, uh, my church, uh, deacons function more as consultants, as kind of public ministers, but they don't make the decisions for the church. We're a small church and the whole church makes a decision on matters. I'm a consultant. I'm more, in, from my perspective, I'm more ex officio. Um, I put the ideas out there and then I say, you guys make the decision. Uh, my role is to encourage you to come up with the ideas yourself, um, even though I'm kind of hinting about them. <laughs> Um, and leading like that, that's my preferential role. But there are some Southern Baptist pastors that are, you know, dictators of sorts. Um, I don't like that style. But deacons can be very authoritative or they can be more of a sounding board. And that's the way um, that's the way I prefer to do it as a sounding board, uh, more of an approach. Sure. Do you have thoughts on that, Robert? Uh, all the resources that he pointed to are excellent, ready to harvest. Like if you're wondering about, oh, what does the denomination believe or what, does, how does it compare to another one? There's no greater resource out there. Gavin Orland puts out amazing scholarship. His videos are incredible. And like he pointed to, I just, you know, I tried to avoid kind of taking sides. So I, I tried to avoid bringing up controversial things, but certainly somebody who wants to argue for or against bishops, and particularly for or against the Pope, would look at that historical evidence that uh, Rev. Rogers was pointing to, you know, was that an accretion? Was that a development that came sometime in like the late second century? Or was it always there? Um, and that's a question kind of for each person to decide on their own. All right. Thanks, Rev. Rogers. 
I think we did it with perfect timing. That's the last of the uh, the request to speak right at the top of the hour. So Robert, did you have any additional thoughts? Uh, my only additional thought is the reason that I went through this is not to, again, stir up controversy. But if somebody is considering like, hey, I want to go check out whatever church, I think it's helpful to know, say, if you're going to a Baptist church, that you don't have to worry about a larger organization you just need to worry about that very church that you're visiting because they're congregationalist. If you are going, say, to a Lutheran church that is associated with the Evangelican, the ELCA, let's say, um, then you may also want to check out the larger organization. So I was just trying to give some pointers for people um, so that they can make informed decisions, not trying to weigh one way or another. But again, I hope this was helpful in some way. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining this evening. Happy New Year as well. We will be back next Friday night, 9 Eastern as usual, and every Friday going forward, continuing the study in Acts. If you missed any part of the tonight's study or you'd like to catch up with other episodes of the study, of course, head on over to the Bible study page of my website, uh, linked on the homepage, mattchristiansonmedia.com slash Bible study. You can contact Robert through that page or contact me as well. Uh, have a great night, and we hope to see you back here next week.